Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Regulation and policy for embedding a circular economy in association with Structural Panda. We've got some great speakers lined up. Um, so I'd like to introduce first David Greenfield, who is the CEO of Sodex. We've got Chris Clark, the Director of Performance and Improvement at SCAPE. We've got Jamie Roberts, Director of Managed Accounts at Reconomy and Max Woodford, the Assistant Director for City Development and Regeneration at Brighton and Hove Council. So Dave is going to start with a, a short presentation. I'll ask the panel a couple of questions each and then I'll invite you to bring up questions and I'll take them forward to the panel. So please use the uh, QR code. Hopefully you know what you're doing now. If not, raise your hand and we'll take the microphone to you. Thank you, Pippa. Good afternoon, everybody. Hopefully everybody's nice and uh, cool. Um, I've got this little picture behind us to highlight uh, politicians. Anybody seen this before? Um, In Berlin, essentially highlighting that politicians are chatting away while the world burns around us. Um, And that feels very much like uh, some of our problems at the moment. So, I just want to give you a couple of statistics to begin with. Um, This one is probably the most scary. 75% of all of the infrastructure on this planet in 2050 currently doesn't exist. Okay, that's from 2015, so it's changed slightly. But the amount of infrastructure that we're going to create over the next 35 years, 25 years, is absolutely insane. And if we look at the environmental impact of that infrastructure, 80% of it is designed in at the conception and design phase. So if we get that wrong, we're ending up with a much, much bigger problem for all of the new infrastructure. But alongside the new infrastructure, 85% of today's buildings in the UK are still going to be in use by 2050. So we need to think about retrofit. So we need new builds and we need retrofit. And that's where policy and regulation on both sides is really key. So I'm going to assume that you all know what a circular economy is uh, and focus very much on five business models. Circular supplies, so using renewable energy, bio-based and fully recyclable items. Resource recovery, taking the waste streams that are already there and doing something special with them. Extending the life of the products and the services and the buildings that we currently have. Sharing. Max has got a fan over there. He's already shared it with us. (laughs) We want more sharing. Um, Products as a service. So moving away from consumption to actually how can we get the delivery of the service that we want. And we're in a disruptive world. There's three technologies that are really uh, critical to this and link very well to where we are today. Digital technologies, you'll all know of those, Internet of Things, Big Data, Blockchain, RFID. Physical technologies, 3D printing, etc. And then biological technologies. The last one probably is the one that is most overlooked at the moment, but actually is going to be really critical to helping to deliver a circular economy. So I was asked to talk to you a little bit about government and local government interventions and policies and regulations. So I thought I'd start off with 
a little bit, bit of a look backwards and the origins of the circular economy movement. So Professor Walter Stahl in the 1970s started talking about closed loops and then was followed by uh, Michael Browngar and William McDonough in the early noughties and late, uh, early noughties um, about cradle to cradle. Those three actually really fueled the concept of circular economy, which was picked up by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation in 2010. And they created the McKinsey reports with McKinsey in 2012, which set the benchmark for the opportunity for circular economy. So circular economy as a concept is still really quite new. If we look at some of the legislation that has then followed, EU directive in 2015, five years after the concept of circular economy was first born, is absolutely impressive. UK government then put in place the environmental plan and the UK waste and resources strategy, all of which have links into waste and resources and construction. We then had in 2020 the Circular Economy Action Plan and then in 2023, some of you have seen this, some of you might not, um, University of Exeter through the UKRI, NICER programme, have launched a Circular Economy Dashboard Roadmap. I'll talk about that latter one in a bit more detail, uh, really to highlight some of the focus of what everybody's looking at. Legislation goes back quite a long way in time. I did my PhD in waste management. Um, I wasn't around in 1388, but the first bit of waste legislation was in 1388. Forfeits um, for the removal of refuse. Um, you can see there's a huge amount of regulation when it comes to waste management. And this is up to 1990. And then post 1990, the amount of legislation that is out there now is massive. And this is only a small selection. I've tried to pick up the ones that are most relevant to the construction industry, but it's missing out things like planning, which are huge. Um, I would probably need about 10 different slides for everything that's in relation to uh, legislation. And that's not including local government or regional, if we had it anymore. One of the most important for us in the UK is the environmental plan, uh, the DEFRA one. And it's focusing on essentially six key indicators. Resource productivity, greenhouse gas emissions, waste production, recycling, landfilling and waste crime. Those three will come into the UK waste and resource management strategy. But raw material consumption, greenhouse gas emission, and global greenhouse gas emission and the carbon footprint are all the metrics that government are talking about at national level and that's going to filter down to all of ourselves. I mentioned the DEFRA Resources and Waste Strategy published in 2018. The narrative here is really quite impressive, dare I say that, of the government. Uh, preserving our stock of material resources by minimising waste. Promoting resource efficiency and moving towards the circular economy. That's the ambition of the government. Whether they're here next year or not is another matter. This is in place. Um, minimise the damage caused to our natural environments and deal with waste crime. From a policy and regulation point of view, 
this is setting the narrative which policymakers should be working towards. I mentioned the circular economy hub. Just to go a little bit international, um, Khalid Abu Bakr at the Circular Economy Hub has been doing a review of circular economy strategies across the world and has started looking at how many there are by different countries and whether they're national, municipal, regional, how they're baselining and what sectors they're in. So this gives you an idea of the number of roadmaps in a basket of countries. Some countries, like the UK, have got 25 route maps already, some of which I'll tell you about in a minute. Of those 25, these are the sectors that individual route maps cover, with construction, minerals, sustainable waste management being the three top sectors. Um, these sectors, as we all know, are very relevant to the work that we're doing here. Um, some of the others will have a link in there, but it's interesting to see that nearly a third of all route maps in the UK are focusing on construction and waste management related products. And if you look at some local ones, Brighton & Hove City Council launched their Circular Economy Action Plan last year at this event. Um, this is some of the actions in relation to buildings and construction. There's a lot of really good stuff in here, focusing on things like the Rebus, uh Climate Challenge for 2030 um, and looking at whole life carbon assessments. There's too much in the action plan to actually put in a decent slide. So I've only taken the selection. If you haven't looked at it, please do. We've also got in London, the ReLondon GLA route map, which is focusing very much on construction as well. And we've got uh, principles in here such as conserving resources, increasing efficiency and sourcing sustainably, designing to eliminate waste and managing waste in the operational phase. And then you've got a number of decision trees that help developers and construction companies determine what and how they should manage during the operational life and the construction and demolition process. Um, slightly different one. Uh, this is Tower Hamlets, the most densely populated part of the UK. Uh, we helped them write their supplementary planning document in 2020 to focus on how they could actually use policy, planning policy, to change the way that high-rise developments are uh, constructed to increase recycling. So this decision tree essentially means that what they're expecting developers to put in place in Tower Hamlets is an AWCS, which is an automated collection system, as you all well know, uh, a vacuum system that means that the recycling rate in the tower block will be significantly higher than currently. Uh, final example is in the West Midlands. Um, this was published in 2022 and set out um, a scope for what the West Midlands should be able to do probably can't see this but similar wording resource optimization green growth innovation and collaboration and enabling foundations and uh, we did a mass balance analysis of the inputs and outputs to the whole of the west midlands to come up with the conclusions which go and have a read of the documents um, quite interesting so to conclude huge amounts of opportunities for policy and regulation particularly around planning and procurement. 
we have a lot of gaps. Um, I got asked by the, uh, the concrete guys over there to say, we need better regulation for secondary raw materials, and I agree entirely. Um, we need to focus on build, new builds and retrofits. And actually, let's stop having strategies and focus on action plans. Thank you. Thanks very much, David. Really good setting the scene so we can start the panel discussion. Um, right, Max, we'll go with you first, please. Yeah. As a local authority, what levers do you find are easy to pull to um, support the development of the circular economy? So, can you hear me? Not yet. Am I? Don't know. Is this working? Or? That is the coolest AV tech with <laughs> sunglasses on. <laughs> <laughs> Or do I need to? Can you turn it off? No, no. Unbelievable. Okay. Is that working? Yeah, no, we Brilliant. can hear you. Right. Yeah, uh, so I just wanted to kind of um, build on the point you were making, David, that, that right at the end there around uh, regulation. And there's oh, a difference right. between, the sorry, the difference between um, kind of national regulation and local regulation I think is really important for us. So one of the levers that we have is we are the local planning authority, we write the local plan and that is really one of the key documents, you know, that's what determines the what gets built and to a lesser extent how, how it gets built. And but I, I think the problem with using the local planning system is that, you know, there's hundreds of different local authorities, we're all at different stages. Um, in Brighton and Hove, our city plan part one, which is our kind of our strategic key document that everything hangs off, we started preparing that in kind of, I don't know, probably 2014, a, lot, a mm -hmm. long time ago. Um, and we were basing it on what was in the national planning policy framework then. So things move on and what that, uh, and, and so we've kind of prepared a document which is relevant to when we started it, but isn't completely relevant now. So I think with national legislation, we'd be much more able to, well, with kind of national regulation, I think we'd have that much more certainty through, I'd say something maybe like the building regulations rather, mm -hmm. rather than through planning. But, but in terms of the levers that we do have, uh, like I say, we are the local planning authority. I think the, the other big um, lever we have is we are a builder. So we build um, council houses and various other developments in, in the city. Um, so uh, as a builder, we, we choose the specification of the buildings that we build and, and you know, we, we have a large impact on how the city looks through, through the things we do ourselves directly and, and with that also what the, what the kind of standards are that we set for ourselves as a, as a developer but then also we can transmit that on to, on to partners in the city. So, um, so yeah, so, and then I think the other kind of key area is, is we're a procurer as well. So, you know, it, within the local economy, the, the, the local council will be one of the biggest kind of, you know, buyers of stuff in, in, in a city. Um, and again, it comes back to what are the standards we set for ourselves when we procure. So if, if we are procuring, to what, to what extent are we putting the circular economy at the heart of that procurement decision making? Um, and then, and, and again, kind of setting a standard, showing what we expect from the city, but also kind of developing those markets. So if people are, are providing us with circular economy solutions to our procurement needs, then 
they can start to kind of spread that round and, and take it further. But those are probably the, the three key levers, I think, yeah, that we have. That's probably a good time to, to bring you in, Chris. From a procurement perspective, um, what can you see that will support that, that challenge of um, enabling the circular economy? Um, can you hear me? No. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, I don't know. Is that on? Just carry on with that. Okay. Quite close to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think the the trends in procurement from client downwards. So you, you need to think about procurement as both what the client is asking for, but also then what buying organisations in the value chain are doing as well. Um, I think there's a trend towards quality against cost, not necessarily holistically, but the idea that we're we're putting greater weight on quality requirements is really important. We touch on what what some of those might mean. Um, a whole life perspective is massive. Um, if, we're, if we're considering cost in the immediate term, it does nothing to incentivise the economy we want. Um, so a movement towards whole life cost, um, whole life resource use is, is essential. Um, and I think talking about the regulation locally, we're seeing, depending on where you are, local trends in specific terms. So in London, for example, where you've got a circular economy requirement in planning, very different requirements in project procurement compared to other places that don't, which is why it's great to hear that local focus. Um, uh, and we've certainly seen that as another example. Um, Meridian Water, which Enfield are developing, has got a huge amount of focus on that. It's a 20-year regeneration program. So they can think about the end stage of that in planning. Um, and I think at a high level, the, 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 some of the metrics and, and success criteria are changing, so we've given our own example in that. Um, we're abandoning diversion from landfill as a success criteria in construction. We should be talking about waste intensity. Diversion from landfill is a 90s problem, I would argue. So, so some simple KPI tweaks uh, and some metric changes can have quite a major, a major requirement in there. Yeah, thanks. That takes us really nicely. Um, I don't know if yours is working, Jamie, do you want to test it? I think we'll just go with this one, shall we? All right. <laughs> um, how difficult is it from a waste management perspective to um, help drive up that circularity and the reduction in waste? Yeah, I, I think um, from my perspective, I debated with going with a bit of a politician's answer on this from um, easy, not so easy, always easy. Um, I, I think it depends. Um, I think it's important to understand a backdrop of decades of waste management contractors who've geared themselves up to operate in a linear, linear economy model on a cradle to grave. Um, I, I think from, from us, uh, we're an outsourced waste management provider, so we don't run the wheels or the assets, so it's a lot easier to adapt. We're impartial to route to disposal, so we can embrace that kind of circular approach. Um, but it definitely becomes down to behaviour. There's lots of great ideas out there, but actually delivering those ideas and delivering those outcomes are a challenge and they, mm -hmm. they definitely require a lot of collaboration. And that's collaboration across us, uh, into our supply chain, across our customers and our, our customers' customers ultimately. Um, I think there's, um, there's lots of ways Chris touched on earlier about reporting and moving away from landfill diversion as a key statistic. Uh, we work in the construction, housing and infrastructure sector and waste intensity is something we work with very closely with our clients and that's where we can actually evidence how the, the good work that's been done on the ground to help them reuse and reduce waste. 
Um, we've, we've worked with them to deliver tools like our Zero Waste Index, which will allow customers to see how much waste they're reusing and recycling versus how much they're uh, burning and burying, aligned to 1.5 degrees and climate change. So I think it's important we need to take that holistic approach right the way across the waste hierarchy. But there's some great examples of things going on the ground. You know, a lot of contractors now will really focus on maximizing material reuse on the project, putting noggin boxes for timber reuse on site, um, reusing timber, uh, sorry, reusing inert material and bring it, rather than bringing in uh, virgin materials. Um, and, and then there's lots and lots of circular opportunities out there. Um, we've recently done something with McDonald's restaurants as part of their refit. You were talking about the importance of designing for refit and construction. And um, when they when they refit the um, when they refit refit the uh, the restaurants, they take all the redundant ceiling tiles now, and we've been able to work with the manufacturer to take those um, take those ceiling tiles out, go back to the manufacturer and remanufacture them into the same ceiling tiles as a complete closed loop solution, and it's actually what's allow us to sort of win that win that contract with those. So it's really really important, but it's it's not easy, is the honest answer. It really isn't. <laughs> David, what can the clients do to help? Or what success have you seen? Yeah. Oh, mine's, is mine working? No, it's not. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Right. Uh, I think in terms of the clients, one of the key things is to really understand the opportunity. We tend to talk about milestones. So if you're actually going to do an active retrofit, look ahead and look at what you can do firstly to do an assessment of what's already in there, what you can then actually reuse. Um, if you're doing new builds, uh, one of the things we did with Brighton Hove was to look at all of these policies that are coming through and trying to prepare the city to be able to be, able to be in a good position to do them. Uh, you, Chris, you mentioned the London circular economy primer. That's a really good example. So one of the key things for the clients to do is to actually specify for the future rather than doing what they've done for the last 20 years and just go, okay, we've got a zero to waste landfill policy during construction, that will do us. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to, in many cases, educate the clients as to the opportunities that circular economy actually brings. And that picks up what Jamie was saying. It's not just about the waste that we generate during the process, it's about how do you actually design to prevent waste during the operational lifetime, how do we design so that we can actually have dismountable and disassemblable buildings? How do we design so that we can have retrofit that is easy um, as the building has different layers of lifetime? So start to understand the lifetime of different materials in relation to the building and plan for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please do. I just, um, I, I, I'm really supportive of designing for circularity. It's a massive, challenge and it's an important consideration um, one thing that I, I want to call out is the urgency of the problem so that's that's yeah. fixing a long-term problem so just to put this into stark local context the construction sector in the UK is filling the Amex arena twice a week with rubbish that's how much waste comes off UK construction sites that's the problem yeah. so let's not kid ourselves about how major and immediate this issue is and I think the second thing is we, we really need to get into that design process on the long term, but also the short term. We have a huge number of lazy specifiers, and I am that brutal because that's what we've got. There are lots and lots of products which use recovered materials, 
and all you need to do is change a number in a specification to require a recycled aggregate or to require a, a byproduct from something else instead of a wasteful material. So yeah. um, let's get let's get active on both fronts, long term and short. Yeah. So um, on that point about um, kind of designing, you know, the, the design being really important, I, I would agree 100%. I think one of the real challenges we face as local authorities, though, is a is a skills challenge. So we if we require people to design buildings or, or whatever with, um, you know, that where the circularity is built into it, have we actually got the people there who can check those and, and meaningfully check those designs and actually understand them and know, and know what's going on? I would say at the moment, probably not. So there's a massive kind of skills gap that we would need to overcome as, as a local authority with other local authority partners and, and then also the kind of resourcing side of it as well. So those skilled people need to be paid and councils don't have a lot of money. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that, that's one of the kind of challenges. We're just gonna add, we, we quite, af quite often get asked the question, why is it intuitive for a waste management contractor to work with its client to reduce or eliminate waste? But arguably that's what has allowed our business to grow over the last decade plus. Um, it's about being in it together and it's about delivering those outcomes. Um, I mentioned it's a lot easier for us than a direct operator to be versatile in terms of routes for disposal or embracing new technology, but I think we've all got to be on that journey together and it's an education piece that needs everybody to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Your point about having a, the staff and the, the skills gap leads to one of the questions that's come through um, from the audience. So uh, remind you, I've only got one question so far, so please do put them through from the, uh, from the QR code. So one of the audience members has asked, with overstretched planning departments and building control, how do we ensure new regulations are properly policed? I think. Um, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's a difficult one because, you know, just, just kind of, at the moment, just staffing planning departments with, you know, and, and keeping them working and dealing with the, the current workload is, is enough of a challenge. Um, we regularly lose, regularly lose staff to either better paid other local authorities or or to the private sector. So I think, yeah, it, it's difficult. I mean, what we've done through on, on the design side, for example, is work with um, groups like uh, Public Practice, where we bring people in who are skilled and have knowledge from the, um, from the um, private sector, but want to do some time working in local authorities. We learn from them, they, they learn from us. So I wonder whether you know, we could build on a model like that. Um, or, or the other option is whether we kind of maybe work at a, at a higher, more strategic level across a number of local authorities where we need, where we kind of share a mm. skills resource rather than everyone having 10 trained people. There's a kind of a, a bank of 20 across, say, the Greater Brighton City region or something. Yeah, but but David, no, no easy solutions. David, we're just going to jump in there. Okay. Just um, adding to that, I think... Um, the piece of work we did in Tower Hamlets with London, um, I'm not a waste planner, but I work with a waste planner. Um, and that collaboration between the practical waste management regulation and the waste planning was absolutely critical. And of course, coming back to the question about the client, most clients really don't understand local government. So what we ended up doing in the Tower Hamlets was uh, creating something called the 10 steps to occupation. So we actually built the process in simple to use words that said these are the 10 steps that you have to take 
when you're interacting with the council. Interact at this point and talk to them about this. Give them this and see what they say. And that was as a result of workshopping with clients as well as the council and waste management and planning um, don't always talk to each other. So uh, the collaboration at the local authority level and the collaboration with the client is absolutely key. And I think one of the other challenges is, coming back to the clients again, we've still got a lot of clients that are just really happy to build and sell and don't care really what the building is as long as they get their profit. And that's something that we've got to try and address as well. Yeah, the, 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 the challenge of regulation is always numbers and there's aspiration to put money into the economy for good reason and then you end up with no, no safeguards. I'll flip it over and say, use the levers and the incentives you've got at the other end. So um, we've got some amazing outcomes from some clients who go in with a strategy on procurement and investment and use those levers instead of the regulatory end, but they actually say, this is what I want from my project. You want to work on this project, come at it with a strategic intent and so you can pull your procurement levers um, and while I completely accept the challenge of skilled experts in the business, you can create outcomes by asking for them. You don't have to be an expert for the, the market to respond. Um, that's outcomes-based procurement. So, you know, ask for a whole life carbon net zero development. It, that's not rocket science. I, I don't need to be an economist to calculate the budget of a project. I don't need to be a carbon specialist to set a target on carbon. I'm, I'm really forthright about that with clients. It's just do it because everyone will then respond to that. If you don't do it, no one's responding to anything. So it's a front-end action. Okay, the questions are flooding in now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so on your comment previously on um, that actually lots of clients don't really care and, and they're not setting those targets, we've got a question that says, how can embedding circularity add value to asset owners? Yeah. So um, as, an, as an asset owner, you have two procurement opportunities. You can procure how something is built and you can procure how something is taken apart. And if you grab both of, both of those opportunities, what's in between is the circular economy. So if you think about your building as a resource for the future, and we really do need to start thinking like that, uh, you can put the whole industry in a vice in between. So there's a lever each end to push and pull. So if you own a building and if you're commissioning a building, think about both ends of that problem because you, you're going to end up dealing with it at the end of its life. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's one way of thinking. And the bit in the middle, which is, of course, the maintenance. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think as an asset owner, that's one of the things. If you start implementing circular economy thinking, coming back to your point about whole life costing, you're actually reducing the whole life cost of the development by putting in place a number of circular economy activities. And that's the point that's missed so many times. Uh, we see a lot of developers go, oh, putting in something at the construction phase is really expensive. Uh, it's gonna cost the client more. And we go, no, look at it over the whole life costs and you're gonna be saving money. So it's that long-term thinking which is, is still required. Thanks, yeah. Slight change of subject, we've got a question that acknowledges that whilst looking at new manufacturing and new projects is really important, they'd also like to understand how current or ghost landfill sites could be integrated into the circular economy. Jamie? <laughs> current, current waste streams that are... Oh, I don't know if they would... Go on. I'll pick that one up. Um, I've, I've just set up with three colleagues um, a venture studio focusing on circular economy materials. 
So we're currently doing an assessment of what materials are being wasted to then use in an industrial symbiosis manner. So we're currently taking Kevlar as an example. One of the businesses we've um, actually invested in is taking Kevlar, disassembling it into its fibers, and then reassembling it into a slightly lower grade Kevlar that can be used as a replacement for virgin Kevlar. We're doing the same with our, another business which is taking marine waste and turning it into a biofilm that can be a replacement for fossil-based virgin plastics. So when we're talking about waste, we shouldn't be talking about waste, we should be talking about materials and we should be understanding the components of the materials that somebody might identify as waste and determine what the op opportunity is for a next life in that material. Again, I'll come back to that diversion from landfill thing. So with the waste streams on your projects tomorrow, diversion from landfill does nothing. I can burn waste, that's diversion from landfill. Um, <laughs> it's not great. Um, I think the other thing is there, the, there are lots and lots of things going to skips now that aren't really waste. It's cheaper to dump it there because our focus is on um, managing risk and on transferring risk and not seizing the opportunity. So there's two billion pounds a year in waste streams in construction in just in overruns of package prices, not in the cost of the waste itself. That money should be being used up front, not at the back. So just make use of it. Tell your contractor you don't want to pay extra for waste management and ask for, for budget reduction. Forecast the cost of waste. There's tools out there to do that. I also think there's a lot of unseen opportunity. So I mentioned earlier that um, construction projects are inherently good at segregating brick and block and timber and plasterboard, but there's still a significant volume of waste that goes off in mixed construction demolition. Mm -hmm. And that's really the opportunity. It's so segregating it there to create new streams, to look at better, improved recyclability, uh, and really embracing emerging technologies which can actually deliver opportunities for closed loop solutions and, uh, and maximizing reuse on site. So I think it's, it's that we need to keep drilling into mm -hmm. to keep identifying the opportunity. Yeah. Go on, yeah, please do. Just, just to put a slight downer on that, I suppose. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the challenges is that, you know, we, we, plan for, we plan for waste, but the number of waste sites, certainly in Brighton and Hove, is, is reducing. So if you look at our, our, our kind of strategic waste plan, very few sites. All of that sounds like stuff that needs space, it needs storage. There's not immediate solutions. So if you take a waste stream here, there's not a user immediately there. So it sounds like you're needing to store stuff. Where, where does that happen? That's a, an open question. One example. Um, I know that the manufacturers of rebar in the UK will happily store waste steel on their yards before making it into rebar. So again, that's just a question of saying, where's my waste going and asking for a local solution. Yeah, I, I think... Um Max, I agree with you in terms of Brighton and the context of where waste is generated is really important. We did the West Midlands route map and one of the recommendations was to create a circular economy construction reuse hub. And for the last nine months, the team have been exploring possible opportunities for that. There is a bit more space in the West Midlands than there is in the Brighton Hove area. And there's a little bit more industrial space in uh, the West Midlands. So. Um, I think it's not easy everywhere, but again, it's this mindset that we start, need to start identifying materials and how we can utilise them rather than just seeing it as 
Right, that's a cost that we have to accept. I, I had this first discussion um, with the construction sector in about 2007 under something called Decrease, which was delivering a carbon reduction across the southeast. And we put a very simple graphic up, which was the, um, a skip and the cost of a skip. And at the time, it was about 150 quid. Uh, <laughs> it's quite a long time ago. Uh, and then the rest of the graphic was actually an iceberg and the iceberg was all of the materials in the skip and at the time the value of the materials in the skip was 1500 quid at the time the big contractors were worrying about a 50% recycling rate they went can we do 100% recycling um, and we need to get that narrative that this isn't a waste product it's a it's a loss of value a loss of resource and loss of money that you've already paid for. Thanks. We've got a, a few linked questions, so I'm going to try and merge them into to one for you. Um, so, so one of the audiences isn't holding back. They've asked, do the government truly understand the challenge? And if you could make it happen, what policy would you like to see come in place tomorrow? And before you answer that, we've got another suggestion that why is there a focus on requiring the circular economy rather than creating the environment which allows the circular economy to emerge? And I'd like you to merge the answers to one, please. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, steps and, and that what we need to do is, is curve the line before we make a circle. Absolutely agree. So creating uh, recovery businesses and businesses that add value by taking waste out of the waste streams initially is probably what we need to start with and creating the conditions for those to, to, to thrive. Um, and that comes from pressure on the waste, sorry. <laughs> the, the pressure, on, pressure on the commercial and the tonnage that's being created and trying to, trying to argue for conditions where businesses that repurpose and reuse thrive. And there is, there's an incredible industry of organisations trying to do that. But until you start setting the conditions that incentivise that in your projects, it won't happen. So that's why the whole life resource use measures are important because they, they, that, that trickles down. The buyers in construction start applying different rules to what they're looking for. So you, you do need to start somewhere. And, and, and it's not, I agree though, it's not creating a circular economy. It's creating the conditions to start curving the economy would be mine. I think there's also an opportunity to simplify circularity, um, to get the message across to everybody that it's not that difficult. Um, at present, I don't think circularity is an easy choice. It's more reputation driven or client driven and not the default. And I think that's changing the mindset of everybody. Um, Chris just touched on um, there's a lot of great businesses out of there. I think there's very disruptive businesses from Gen Z, lots of CIC, social enterprises doing some great work around reuse and closed loop. And, um, and it's how we can all embrace and invest in those businesses to become the recycling businesses, the, the resource businesses of the future that can deliver these results for us. Just, just on that point around kind of regulation versus creating an, an, an environment. So yeah, I've probably hung slightly on the word regulation because it's, it's, it's first there. Actually, the approach we've taken as a local authority is to kind of focus on that, trying to create a positive environment. So things like the route map and the action plan, that's what that's about. But I think we come back to that problem that David, you were saying earlier around, we've got a, we've got a route map, 100 other local authorities have got route maps. So it's trying to come together with a 
something that is a bit kind of joined up that, that works across a, you know, a wider area or, or, or the whole local authority. So in Brighton and Hove, we've written a route map for Brighton and Hove, but the Brighton and Hove economy doesn't stop at, at the administrative boundary of Brighton. It, it goes all the way up to kind of Crawley, almost, almost up to London. So do we need to work on a bigger functional economic area? Yes, we probably do. Answering the first question, do government get it? Uh, at a national level, I think there is evidence that they get some of it. Um, it's not embedded particularly in Treasury at the moment, and I think that's one of the biggest uh, challenges. Uh, but DEFRA definitely get it in their own little way. Um, there's some good policies out there. Local government, as we see, is starting to get it, and there's some really... Um, futuristic thinking local authorities. But the biggest challenge is resources um, at both the government and the local government level, um, but also embracing by industry, because there's still a lot of industry that don't want to embrace it. Um, we haven't talked about the housing sector. We haven't got time to talk about the housing sector. But um, that, if you look at the narrative from government, build, 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 build houses, the narrative should be build, build, build circular houses. Um, now, will we get over that? Will we get to that point? I doubt it in the near future. And that's where one of the major barriers is. Okay. We've mentioned um, a few times it's come up how important the whole life perspective is on, and actually how that, when you look at it from that way, you've got much more opportunities. We've got a question here that says, how do you incentivize developers who to adopt that strategy of whole life carbon when they're not operating the, the building so they don't see the benefits? Um, there's a couple of things to call out in that space and there is a piece that uh, local authorities can do in planning that helps. So the uh, Birmingham have got an amazing ambition to only have high quality development come to Birmingham and their, their, their philosophy is if we attract really high, high caliber developers that's what we'll get. Um, encouraging use of standards like neighbours, which is high-performing buildings, leads to developers who are thoughtful about the ESG and the quality of what they're putting on the ground. Um, and, and wanting to be a place where people who value that stuff choose to live makes a really big difference. And actually, there's a lot of them in every electorate. So you tell them you're going to build buildings they want to live in, that's actually quite appealing. And, and for me, the biggest piece at the moment is saying you'll be able to live in a house you can afford to operate I can't turn my gas on two months of the year at the minute, and it's not that big a house. It's just really expensive. So uh, there are a number of levers you can pull, citizenry levers as well as developer side. But it is a challenge, and that one is where parts and the building regs are so essential, where the government have massively missed a trick in the last 18 months with two private members' bills to just pull the lever. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, collectively, industry wants it, in my experience, developers and contractors. But yeah, Max. What, what I would say is that we as local authorities actually do have experience of this. So we, we build flats, we operate them for the next 60, 70, whatever years. So actually, that is our core business of building stuff and making it last and, and be of really good quality. So I think, you know, sometimes you look back at what you're already doing and kind of learn from that. I, th I think the other thing is around um, looking at what's getting built at the moment in the city. And, and it's quite a lot 
of stuff that's going to be owned by an investor that kind of purchases it immediately. So it's not the kind of the build and run retail developer who's just going to, you know, build build something as cheaply as possible and and then they're 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 out the out the out the door with a ten year kind of um, guarantee. It's it's people like legal in general who are building two hundred flats and that is an investment that they will collect income from for years to come. So they're kind of copying what councils are doing really in terms of building building assets. So I think again they can learn and and you know where the where the owner is holding on to that asset for a long time, they're incentivized to bring in that circularity and, and to make it work. Just one really quick add on which is uh, the, the aspiration for quality that's come with the Building Safety Act is helpful okay. and it is helping with the quality of large-scale development for sure. Yeah, and I think just adding to that, the, uh, again, in many cases the client model needs to be more of a design, build, finance and operate rather than design, build, bugger off, which is what tends to happen in quite a lot of these. So if we can get more on the former, then we're going to get people thinking about the whole life cost. Well, I think we've got time for one last um, question. So we've got a comment here from the audience that we need better data to show the volumes and surplus of resources. You're nodding, so that sounds like a good comment. And a suggestion that perhaps some councils and managers in the industry don't believe that there is that much waste. So reflections on that one to close then, please. We could pass it around. Um, yeah, no, that's fine. I've, um, over the last two years, we've done assessments for Department of Environment on waste data. Um, there is some excellent waste data out there. There's not particularly good waste data on commercial industrial. There's brilliant waste data for household generated waste. Um, we need a lot more emphasis on capturing data for information purposes rather than just for data gathering because data, the information you get is only as good as the data you can capture. So um, for me, I think it's absolutely imperative to understand the flow of materials. I was watching, as you do, Panorama Park program on record last night about uh, landfills that are leaching into uh, the River Thames in Tilbury. They haven't got a clue what's in that landfill from the 1960s. Um, and we know that we're getting much better at data, but what we have to start then doing is looking at circular economy thinking and that's eco-labeling and for the future being able to identify what materials are being used in the construction sector and then being able to tag them over their lifetime so at the end of their first life they can be identified for a second life and that's one of the major problems of waste we don't know what the materials are and therefore what they can be useful okay thanks i think we're closing comments now yeah, well, we've got we, we run an organisation that does construction waste data, so I've got big volumes of real data from the last five years which we can share. Um, in terms of that piece, that's where digitisation and sustainability intersect, and the, a lot of people are frightened of specifying BIM in their projects, information management. It's not as difficult as it sounds, you just have to ask for what you want, so that, I think that's a good shout. Right? I think there has to be a lot of standardisation as well with everybody taking the same approach because at the moment everybody's got their own twister interpretation on what might be recycling, what might be reuse. So it's really mm -hmm. important that there comes out with some guidance and standardised data sets that everybody reports in the same way. And, and, and linked to that, I think, is also how we communicate. So we get the data. 
the way we communicate with our decision makers is really important so they actually understand why we're collecting it and what the value is. So I'm, I'm in the process of briefing a new administration and, and it's a mixed bag, but for some, the term circular economy is still actually not something they quite understand and can almost switch them off a little bit. So it's how do we communicate what we're doing, why we're doing it, and try to kind of, you know, keep them on, on target really. And that again comes from the data, but it's also the, 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 the language we use and not getting too techy maybe. Okay, yeah. Last comments? Thank you very much. Thanks for bearing with us with the, the delay at the start. Um, we'll be around for a few minutes. Feel free to, to come up and ask, ask any questions.